you'll uh, open your scriptures, open your Bibles to Romans and chapter one, please. We also, I think, have this printed in the bulletin, so you can look at it there. I encourage you, um, as you have it opened and as I read it, that you keep it open this morning. This is a very tightly argued passage of scripture that uh, primarily I want us to see Paul's argument here and how he lays this out so you can get it straight in your minds. I can get it straight in mine, and so it might be helpful always to have it in front of you, if you could. Romans in chapter one. As we come now to this passage, I want to pray. Uh, Father, uh, merciful, eternal God, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. I pray that you would open our minds, illuminate, bring light to our minds, that we may purely and perfectly understand your word, that our lives may be conformed to what is here in this passage and that we have rightly understood. And may there be nothing in us that would be displeasing to you. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And then we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, the word of the Lord remains forever. Um, Now, Paul 
He's writing to this church in Rome, as you remember, uh, in order to announce his visit to them. He wants to visit them because he wants to use Rome as a stopover to get to Spain. And he wants to get to Spain because his calling is to take the gospel where it hasn't been yet brought. And it hasn't yet gone to Spain, so Paul wants to take the gospel to Spain. He hasn't come to Rome yet, in part because the gospel's already been there, and so no need for him, given his calling, to go to Rome. So he now, however, sees a need to go and is anticipating going. He's heard about their church. He knows them, cares for them, and so he wants to really elicit their support, uh, their prayer support, perhaps material support as he goes to Spain for this, this mission. So he writes because he wants to announce that, but he also writes because he knows that there's some disharmony among the Jews and Gentiles in the church in Rome. And so he wants to write in such a way that will cause them to live at peace with one another because he knows that unless there's peace in the church, the gospel won't, won't flourish Unless there's peace in the church, he's not going to be able to rally them for their support for him to go to Spain. So, so he wants to make sure that the church is the church, they're living in peace with each other. And so he's writing uh, to them to, to bring this peace. Now, the question is, what's his approach? And as we mentioned last Sunday, his approach is to lay out the gospel for them as uh, completely as he possibly can. Um, The reason for that, as Paul expresses, first of all, is that it's all he has. In other words, Paul doesn't rely upon anything else other than the gospel. You remember when he was in the church in Corinth, he said, the only thing I desire to know about you is Christ and him crucified. That's that's why I'm here. And so he writes to them and he says, listen, I'm obligated to all the people in the world, really, uh, because I I have the gospel and I'm a steward of the gospel. And so I have this great debt (laughs) that I'm, I'm here and I owe everybody. I owe everybody the gospel, I owe them the opportunity to hear it, and even the people in Spain. And, and so this is what I've got, and so I'm going to take it to them. But, but I'm going to lay out the gospel for you because if I do, I'm confident that you'll join me. I'm confident that you'll join with each other to join me, to take the gospel Spain. Because you see, the gospel's glorious. It lays out for us who God is and what he's done for us through Jesus. You get the sense that Paul is thinking, if they could really see this, I know they see it, but if they could really see it again, and I could lay it out for them in, in its fullness, and they really see it, then they'll be captivated by it, and they'll see the glory of it, and they won't be able to keep it from anybody else, just like I'm not able to keep it from anybody else. I want everybody to see the glory of God, because there's nothing more glorious than this. There's nothing greater than this. I mean, we spend a, a great deal of time, don't we, talking about Super Bowl victories and World Series victories and, and national championships and all these things that we think are glorious, and, and we love to talk talk to people about those things because that's uh, true for us living in this part of the country. But, 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 but Paul says, I want you to see the glory of Jesus. And when you see the glory of Jesus, then you won't be able to keep it. And he also knows that if this people really hears the gospel, 
and really embraces and grabs hold of it in all of its fullness, there's no way they can't live in harmony with each other because it will so humble them before God and each other that they'll live together as believers in Jesus. And that's important. You remember when Jesus was um, praying, you have it in John 17, uh, how he prays uh, not only for the disciples there, but also for us. And he prays, this is John 17, verse 22, and he says, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them so that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So in the context of Jesus' prayer, we realize the importance of harmony, peace among us, peace in their context, peace among us, in order for people to really see the truth of the gospel. So all that's wrapped up in Paul's reason for going about his business, the way he's going about his business with them to lay out the gospel. Paul says, listen, the gospel will achieve its objective. I'm not ashamed of it. I know that it will achieve its objective. I know that it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. That is, it's for everyone to hear this great gospel. And he says, I know it's the power of God. And I know that anybody who believes it will, in fact, be saved, will be rescued from their sin, will be rescued from the wrath of God, will be reconciled to God, will have their sins forgiven, will be declared righteous in the sight of God. All of that, all the great blessings that are true for someone who is a believer in Jesus. He says, I know that this is accomplished through the gospel. And I'll never be put to shame. And he says, I know that because in the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God from faith for faith. In other words, he says there's a righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, not just the holiness of God, but the righteousness that God gives to us because it comes by faith. It doesn't come by our work. It doesn't come by our merit. It doesn't come by our own righteousness. It doesn't come by us doing X number of good things and not doing X number of bad things and weighing all those out and and at the end of the day being declared righteous by God because of, of what we've done. He says, no, it's not any of that at all. It's a gift, this righteousness of God. And it comes by way of, by way of faith. It began, I make this case in chapter 4, but it began with Abraham. We saw it at least clearly with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, where the scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness. By faith, even our father Abraham wasn't because of what he did, but he was declared by God righteous on the basis of his faith. And so it isn't something we achieve. And so Paul says, that's the good news. That's why the gospel is such good news. And he goes on to explain that. We say, well, why is it such good news? And he says this. 
He says, at the same time that the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith for faith, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So he's saying that there's this necessity for the righteousness of God because the wrath of God is also um, being revealed. And that little expression, being revealed, is a present tense. I mean, it's, it's being revealed in Paul's day. It's being revealed in our day. It's being revealed all the time. Now, there is a final judgment, a final wrath of God. Paul will speak of that uh, from time to time in this letter. We can see it in chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up uh, wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so there's a day of wrath coming, but Paul's saying even now, even in his day, and we could then say even in our day and in the days to come, the wrath of God is already being revealed. We can can actually see it. And so given that, if we're going to be saved from that wrath, how is it that we could have this righteousness. Well, that's the gospel. He, that's the gospel, he says. Now notice what he, what he says in, in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Um, first, ungodliness. That's uh, our attitudes and our actions towards God. When they're godly, then they're right and just, and we're treating God as he deserves. When they're ungodly, then we're not treating God as he deserves. So this wrath of God is being revealed against this ungodliness, that is, people who treat God, all people, frankly, who treat God in this ungodly way, not as he is meant to be treated, they're treating him really unjustly. It's probably the height of injustice. And unrighteousness. This unrighteousness can also be translated wickedness. By the way, this will be the tone for the next rest of the sermon. No jokes today. This is just, this is about the wrath of God. So we need to really feel it. But, um, I'll tell you why that's important at the end. But, against unrighteousness, which also can be translated wickedness of men. That is how we treat one another unjustly. We don't treat one another as we ought to treat one another. We don't treat one another as God would have us treat one another. We don't treat one another um, as fellow image bearers of God. We don't treat one another uh, loving one another as we even love ourselves, right? And so... He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And so he's already giving a hint at verse 19 there when he says that who uh, suppress the truth, uh, you have to have it in order to suppress it. So he says, you have this truth about God, 
and how you're to be and how you're to worship, but, but you suppress that truth. You keep it down like you suppress a sneeze. You don't allow it to come out. Uh, you don't want to acknowledge it. You don't want to say it's there. And so we suppress this truth. For verse 19, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So we're asking the question, to whom is this wrath of God revealed? It's revealed against any who are ungodly or unrighteous, any who treat God improperly and any who treat one another improperly. All right, all of us. So it's being revealed, right, against such. And you ask the question, well, is that, is that really fair? Is that really fair of God to, to do? And that's where Paul goes next. He says, well, you have the truth, you just... You just suppress it. Jesus would summarize that expression when he simply said, men love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. So we suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So what he's saying is, well, God is invisible. He's made visible his attributes. He's made visible he is. And the question is, well, how's he done that? Now, later, the next chapter or so, we'll talk about God's oracles, God's special revelation. He's not talking about that here. Notice what he talks about in terms of this making himself known. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So God is saying, as the, as the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. That that is sufficient. We should look at creation. We should look at this great work of God and be humbled by it. To be able to look at this great work of God and be able to say, there's one who has eternal power and a divine nature. This is the cue in us. Creation is the cue in us, that kind of response. But it doesn't. It doesn't because of ungodliness and unrighteousness. It doesn't because of our sin. And so we suppress that truth. You know, some have seen here, and what Paul's writing in Romans 1 is, is sort of his way of, of exegeting, if you will, or laying out Genesis, um, uh, especially 1 through chapter even 4, that God is the great creator of all that is, and it's good. And yet, human beings decide not to go the way of God and worship him, but their own way that they would rather be as God. That was the temptation of the evil one who comes. And then as soon as that happens, you see all kinds of wickedness and evil breaks through. But what did Adam and Eve do when right after they sinned? They suppressed the truth about God. They went and hid, as if to say, God really isn't here. He really can't find us. Some sense they were like little kids playing the game of peekaboo when they would go like this, you can't really see me, right? And we think that's ridiculous. And indeed it was. But that's the darkness, you see, that's the suppressing of the truth of God. We, we see it right there in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned. 
What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, his eternal power. That is, there's someone who's great, who was here before all of this, someone who is eternal. There's no beginning out of which this all began. In power and divine nature, this one who is, in fact, God. And so you see, the apostle says at that point, we're without excuse. And his wrath, you see, is poured out upon them. Now, there have been arguments over history that perhaps the wrath of God is a bit unbecoming of God. I mean, to talk about God who's, who's really angry. Can we really put that on God? And, and the answer is, according to Scripture, of course, yes. But we mustn't think that God's anger is like our anger. It isn't this fit of rage. It isn't this irrational anger. It isn't this sort of uh, schoolboy pride that causes one to be angry when, when somehow someone disses him or something like that. It isn't that at all. It isn't irrational. It's God's rational response. Um, J.I. Packer, in a section of uh, his book, Knowing God on the Wrath of God, which, by the way, if you're interested, I think, at least for my um, understanding, is the best treatment on the wrath of God. But he writes this, he says, wrath, a deep, intense anger and indignation. Anger is the stirring of resentful displeasure and strong antagonism by a sense of injury or insult. Indignation is righteous anger aroused by injustice and baseness. And he goes on to say, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry where anger is called for. Even among men, there is such a thing as righteous indignation, though it's perhaps rarely found. But all God's indignation is righteous. Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good, be a good God. We repeat that. Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good, be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it's precisely this adverse reaction to evil, which is a necessary part of moral perfection that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. His wrath is his justice. His wrath is a reflection of his moral perfection. But without excuse, because God has shown himself to be God through creation, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They knew God, but didn't honor him as God. What does that mean? It means they didn't worship him. 
and bow before him. And he recognized that there is one upon whom they're utterly dependent, upon whom or to whom they're utterly accountable. Didn't recognize that. Didn't honor God as God. Didn't go to God and say, tell me, why do I exist? Tell me, who am I, God? And to seek him, to, 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 to lay out our purpose. Rather than that, they developed, they came to their own purpose. This is why we exist. This is who we are. This is how we're to live our lives. And it says they did not give him thanks. I always smile at that one. I think it's really just they were impolite. Uh, you know, you grow up your whole life, your mom, your dad, they tell you, make sure you say thank you, make sure you say thank you. And now God's saying the same thing, and he is. Because you see, thanklessness at this point says, God, I don't really need you. You see, we're thankful for, for that which we need and someone else gives to us. The more we need it, the more valuable it is to us. And the less we can get it for ourselves, the more thankful we are. And God says, I've given you life. I've given you breath. And if you don't say thank you, if you aren't grateful for that, what you're really saying is, God, I don't need you. God, I could have gotten all this on my own. And, and in fact, I'll look to another and I'll give thanks to another rather than you. I mean, it's astounding, right? You've heard this before. You've thought this before, that the atheist who with his or her breath denies the existence of God is using the very breath that God has given. And so he says, you've not honored me as God nor given thanks. You've not worshiped me. But that doesn't mean we stop worshiping. We're made to worship. We're made to look outside of ourselves. And, and, and so we do look outside or even into ourselves. For he writes, they became futile in their thinking. In other words, their minds were twisted. Everything got turned on its end. Uh, they were futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We didn't stop worshiping. We just stopped, started worshiping that which was lesser, that which couldn't satisfy, that which wasn't God. Everything was turned on end. We had the wrong map. We would be trying to, like, like trying to evaluate how something tastes when your taste buds are all wrong. You might think Brussels sprouts taste good and chocolate tastes bad. All right, one joke today. Right. It would be like evaluating music if you couldn't hear certain tones. Couldn't really be able to do that. It's all wrong. That's why Prophet Jeremiah says that our hearts are despicable above all things. They're not to be trusted, right? They're not to be trusted because there's something wrong there. Right? We prefer darkness over light. It would be like 
trying to play a game when, when you don't know how it actually is to be scored. You might think in baseball, you're supposed to get fewer runs, or in golf, you're supposed to have more strokes. You would have it all, everything would be wrong, you see. He says, that's how we now approach life, because we're not seeing it from God. We're seeing it from a different vantage point, the vantage point of our own. We're not in, dark, in light any longer. We're in darkness. And so no longer are we worshiping the immortal, unchanging, everlasting one, the dependable one, the one who's laid it all out, the one who knows our purpose, the one who knows how we're to live that will bring the most joy. We're no longer worshiping him, but rather ourselves, mortal man, the creation, to trying to get from the creation all that we can. And then he says, what happens is that when we claim to be wise, yet are actually fools, when our thinking is turned on its end, then we find that we face these idols. Now, Paul, for reasons I think would be obvious to a Jewish reader that he's picking on Gentiles here and sins which the Jewish um, folks in Paul's day would speak against Gentiles. He goes right at sexual sin. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, that is, these inordinate desires, these controlling desires, these desires that would, that would blot out everything else, these desires that would govern our lives. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In other words, we, we, we lost our moorings in terms of how we understand our sexuality. We lost our moorings under what we believe to be true in terms of sexual purity. God said in Genesis chapter 2 that a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. That sexual intimacy should be confined to that relationship. And that relationship in purity and in, 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 in loyalty to bring security to the other, to, to foster intimacy between each other. And to really reflect our relationship with God. In the Old Testament scripture, God was known to be the husband of his people, his people to be his bride. You see that clearly in Ephesians chapter five, when Paul writes about husbands and wives, and he says, this mystery is great, but I'm writing about Christ in the church. I'm writing about your relationship with him. And so when, when marriage and when human sexuality is degraded, then what's really taking place is we're degrading the relationship with God and his people. That's the real target of it. And so he says, what happens when we begin to think wrongly, when life is turned on its ear, then what we see is sexual impurity. Now he's going to talk about homosexuality in a minute, and so we'll give that some time. But really, as we look even in, in Paul's day and our day, it all began with heterosexual sin. 
It all began, you see, when we forgot about, put aside God's call for us on how we're to relate to one another sexually, men and women, in monogamous marriage. And we see even in our own day that what the Bible would call heterosexual sin is totally normalized in the country in which we live, if not the world in which we live. No one thinks twice about saying, a man saying, I'm living with my girlfriend, we have this home together, this child together. No one thinks twice about that. I don't think twice when we see it in movies or depict it on television or read it in a novel. It's, it's almost expected. It's just part of the fabric of life. And so we, we can see that even in our own day. Paul saw it even in his day. And so we see this misunderstanding, this suppression of God, and so living our lives without him in mind. It's a great expression that Paul uses in one of his other letters where he writes to Timothy, and he says we should live mindful of God. And that's, that's the problem here. We're no longer living mindful of God. We're no longer seeing life through God. And, and so what happens is, well, then everything gets turned on its ear, and, and what seems right is actually wrong. And what seems wrong is actually right in these areas. And then he goes on and says, and for this reason, God gave them up. See, that's the wrath of God. The wrath of God revealed is, at least in part, this is only, not, not the only way that God's wrath is revealed. We can find it revealed differently in different passages. But in this context, God's wrath is revealed by, by giving human beings up to their own lusts and saying, you want this? All right, I'll give it to you. And then in giving it to them, it actually enslaves and destroys not necessarily utterly, because there's still redemption, because we all fit this pattern, but, but God still redeems. And oftentimes he redeems us out of this, because when he gives us over, we realize the bankruptcy of our lives and turn to him. But this is his wrath. He gives them up to the lust of their hearts. He gives them up <clears throat> to dishonorable passions. Biblically, I believe we should, could say it this way, that the relation between a man and a woman in terms of intimacy and desire for intimacy is an honorable passion that can be made to be impure. But relationships, same-sex relationships, in this way, as he describes them, are the result of dishonorable passions. Women for women, men for men. So we see that as well in the context. Paul saw it in the context of the world in which he lived. We see it in the context of the world that we live in. And we need to see it as heterosexual impurity should be seen, and that is, as the wrath of God. And then verse 28 gets more general, and he says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, greed, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. 
So if you didn't find yourself in the other categories, you won't be able to escape these. Gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That's an interesting one to throw in there, isn't it? Disobedient to parents. Won't pick on your kids because I was a kid once. I understand what this means. But you see, when things get turned on its ear, there's disorder rather than order. All of these are the result of disorder rather than order. There's an order of creation in human sexuality. There's an order creation on how we're to treat one another. We're to treat one another of the image bearers of God. That's the order to love as we've been loved, you see. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then here it is, you see. This is the, this is the dagger, if you will. Though they knew, know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. In other words, there's something in us. Well, we can suppress it as human beings, sinful human beings. We can suppress it so deeply that we're no longer sensitive to it. It's the great danger about suppression of truth that as we suppress it, it gets easier and easier to suppress. It gets easier and easier to forget that it's there, this truth. And we become duller and duller to it. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And again, in Paul's day and in our day, we can see that. We can see it in in so many areas. And it's easy to pick on the area of sexuality. It's easy to pick on that and to say that it's nearly, as you know, virtually impossible in our day to say what I've just said publicly. Because no one, hardly, would, other than believers and some others, perhaps, would affirm it. I would be tarred and feathered. You know this in your workplaces and so forth and so on. We can only give approval. We don't, but we are expected to give approval to these things because it seems everyone does. But it's not only true about the sexuality things. The great danger is that we can also give approval to gossip and slander and malicious thought and hatred and all of these other things that that, that arise. You know, when Jerry Bridges wrote that book, Respectable Sins, it, it, it pierced us all because he used many of these right here and says this, these kinds of things happen in church life and we just sort of pass them by. We just sort of overlook them because we're just used to them. And it's as if we know they're wrong. We know they're wrong. We surely do. And yet we give approval to those who do them because we do them and it's kind of nice to have friends in our little circles. So what's the takeaway this morning? Two things, I think. Number one is to see ourselves in this passage. It's real easy to talk about them. In fact, Paul's setting up his Jewish readers because this is quite an anti-Gentile rant that he's on for his day. 
But in chapter 2, he's going to speak to the Jewish believers who might read what he's just written and going, yeah, I knew this about them. <laughs> and he's going to, going to get them as well. It's a great story um, about a man whose name I may mispronounce, but a man named Yehiel Denur. And Denur existed in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany under the hand of a man named Adolf Eichmann. And Denur was called to testify against Eichmann at Eichmann's trial of crimes against humanity. And everybody was expecting this great dramatic sort of testimony because others had given great dramatic testimonies in this case, given who Eichmann was and what Eichmann did. And, and so Denur came in and spoke a bit, but then he just passed out. And everybody thought he passed out because when he looked at Eichmann, all he could see was hatred and anger. And, and all of these things would come back to him that he experienced. And they thought he, that he was just overwhelmed. And so he passed out. But you know, when he gave his explanation to Mike Wallace, of all people, it's in, uh, being interviewed by 60 Minutes back in the 80s, he said, it wasn't that at all. He said, when I looked at Eichmann, I saw a man, and I realized that I am as he. Read Romans, the end of Romans 1. It's easy to say, oh, Eichmann, or they. We need to say, I need to say, that's me. But here's the good news. <laughs> the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For the righteous shall live by faith. And so when I read this, that's me, that's Jesus, there's me covered in the righteousness of Christ. Paul says, live there. Live, bask in that glory. And to the degree that your thinking has returned, the degree that, that you see everything right side up again, the degree that you can see it, Rejoice that you can see it. Don't be proud because it's his light. Rejoice that you can see it. Let's pray. Father, some sense this is a hard word today, but in another sense it's, it's just true and we receive it and say, yes, I, I see it. And now I can give thanks for the salvation that is through Christ, the righteousness that is by faith. So 
I pray for each of us that, yes, we'd be humbled by this, but also that we would rejoice together in the glory of Jesus. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.